In the fiction of C.S. Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan the lion and the little girl Lucy, they meet after a time apart. Aslan greets her. Welcome, child. Aslan, you're bigger, says Lucy. That's because you are older, little one. She asks, not because you are? Aslan responds, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And this is what happens when we grow in our faith. We discover that our Lord Jesus is bigger than we imagined. As we grow in Christ, our concept of his greatness and his glory and his grace expands and deepens. We learn to see him as bigger and as better. And this is what Hebrews is all about. The writer explains how Jesus is greater, he's better than Judaism. He wants us to be proud of Jesus. He's better than all that came before. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant with Israel. That included a priesthood and a temple. But Jesus has eclipsed both the Levitical priesthood and the temple there in Jerusalem. He is a priest of a different order, as we studied last week, of Melchizedek. And he works in a better temple. He works in heaven itself. At the end of chapter 8, we learned how Jesus even cuts a better covenant with a better promise. And now in chapter 9, we learn how he offers a better sacrifice. First one. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Now the tabernacle that Moses erected in the wilderness was a tent 45 feet long by 15 feet wide. It was made of four layers. The inner layer was linen with blue and purple and scarlet thread. It was beautiful. The linen, though, was covered with animal skins. The first layer was that of goat, the second of a ram, and the third of badger skins. In fact, these badger skins were what you saw when you approached the tabernacle. And since they were dark and they were ugly in appearance, it gave the whole dwelling an unappealing you know, presentation. Its beauty was only seen from the inside. And all these details make the tabernacle the perfect type of Christ. For Jesus was a man. Isaiah 53 verse 2 describes him as plain and nondescript. Isaiah says, when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And yet it's on the inside that we behold Jesus' divine beauty, His divinity, His glory. Jesus was God, clothed in flesh, but His beauty was seen from the inside. The tabernacle now had two rooms. The outer room, or the holy place, was 15 feet by 30 feet. And it held three pieces of furniture. There was a lampstand, or the gold menorah. There was the table of sacred showbread, and there was an altar for burning incense. Since the tabernacle had no windows, its only light came from the lampstand. And of course, Jesus is our lamp. He's the light of the world, the Bible calls him. In fact, Revelations 2 and 3 tell us that the churches are envisioned also as lampstands. Why? Because we testify of his light. There was also the table of showbread, or as the Jews called it, the table of presence. 
This held the sacred loaves. And this too was a symbol of Jesus. For Jesus is the bread of life. His presence is the sustenance for our soul. But there was also a second room, the inner sanctum of the tabernacle. Verse 3 tells us, behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, or its Old Testament name, the Holy of Holies, which had the golden altar of incense. Now, in Exodus chapter 30, you'll find that the altar of incense was placed outside the veil, according to Exodus, and yet here, it's inside the veil. So which is it? Well, let me tell you, it's both. The table itself was outside the veil, but the smoke and the fragrance that went up from it permeated the veil and went into the presence of God. That altar of incense, it's a type of our prayers. Right now, we're outside the heavenly throne. We're earthbound. But in Christ and through prayer, we can go before the Lord. We can spend time in His presence spiritually in the heavenly throne room. Also in the Holy of Holies, we're told, was the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of gold overshadowing the mercy seat. The ark represented the very throne of God. It's interesting, inside this box were the stone tablets on which were written God's top ten, the Ten Commandments. Hovering over this box, this two-by-four-foot box, was the awesome presence of God. In the Old Testament, it was referred to as the Shekinah, or the glory of God. Again, the ark was a mini replica of God's throne. Psalm 99 verse 1 and other Old Testament passages refer to God as the Holy One who dwells between the cherubim. In heaven, God is surrounded by cherubs or by angels. And there were two gold cherubs on either end of the Old Testament ark. God's presence or His glory hovered over this box, over this throne the Ark of the Covenant. The law or the commandments rested in the belly of the Ark. You had His glory over it. You had His righteousness dwelling in it. That means between God's glory and His righteousness, there was a solid gold slab known as the mercy seat. It was the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. Over it rested God's righteousness. Below it rested God's law, God's commandments. And it was here on the mercy seat that the priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice. Here is where God's mercy was extended and where God's righteousness was satisfied. Understand, God is love, but God is also holy. So how does His love save sinners without lowering the bar or overlooking our sin? How do we reconcile God's holiness with God's God's love and His mercy? Well, here's how we do it. It's through the blood. The sacrifice both satisfied God's justice and it accesses God's mercy at the very same time. Thus, the one and only place where God's love and His holiness harmonize 
is at the mercy seat. Now, this background helps us to make sense of 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. You might jot that verse down and refer to it later. For there it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That word propitiation, it means place of mercy. In other words, Jesus has become our mercy seat. You see, it's through the sacrifice of Jesus that God's holiness is satisfied. Why? Because Jesus paid the price. Jesus lived the sinful life. All that needed to be done was done. God's holiness was satisfied, but at the same time, God's mercy was extended. And thus now Jesus is the one place to go in the world today where we can be reconciled to God. Jesus is the only way to know God. Now notice the last line in verse 5. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And I wonder why not. Hey, I would have bought some more sheepskin. What a bummer. He breaks open the subject and then he says, well, that's about all we can say about that. Wow. This goes down as the greatest Bible study that never was. Remember in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5, we're told that the tabernacle was really just a small scale model of heaven itself. The writer of Hebrews, he could have gone on to explain the typology of the tabernacle and how every detail of the earthly tabernacle speaks of Jesus and of heaven itself. What a Bible study that would have been. As a matter of fact, when I get to heaven, I'm going to seek out the writer of the book of Hebrews and I'm going to pour him a cup of coffee and I'm going to ask him to tell me the rest of the story. But here, he says that he has to move on to more vital concerns. For he wants to speak to us not of the sanctuary, but of its sacrifices. You understand the whole point of the tabernacle was it was a place for sacrifice. So he begins in verse 6. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. In the Old Testament, access to the tabernacle and thus to God was very limited. The priests couldn't come into the tabernacle at all. They stopped there at the outside altar and they handed over their sacrifice to the priest. A priest could only enter the first room, the holy place. It was the high priest who had the greatest access. Verse 7 tells us, But into the second part the high priest went alone once a year. You see, only one man, and that being the high priest, entered God's presence, and then he could only come once a year. And when he entered, he didn't dare come empty-handed. He came with the blood of a sacrifice. He says, It was not without blood which he offered for himself and for the people's sins, committed in ignorance, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. He's saying the fact that every year these sacrifices had to be repeated indicated that God had not yet granted a permanent pardon, a permanent access into God's presence. And this limited acceptance was proof of the inadequacy of Judaism. Even after a steady stream of sacrifices year after year, 
you still weren't allowed entrance into the throne room of God. He says, Judaism was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the servants perfect in regard to the conscience. In other words, it was all evidence that the law was never able to clear a man's conscience to truly make him right with God. And here's why, verse 10. For the law concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. In other words, the services of the tabernacle, the effects of the tabernacle, and all of the sacrifices that were offered there were superficial. Religion that involves diet and fastings and washings can't affect a man's inner being. All religions, rules, and rituals can't touch a man where he really lives, down in the core of his heart, down on the spiritual level. Verse 11, though, tells us, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He's saying that the priesthood of Jesus was different. Rather than surface and superficial, his work was spiritual. You see, God had made future promises, a new covenant. Jesus was the fulfillment of these good things to come. His spirit now works deep inside our spirit to affect permanent changes, not just superficial changes. He changes us from the inside out. What Jesus does is more than just self-help or behavior modification or positive thinking. No, his power is real and it's supernatural and it touches the deepest part of a person. In other words, Jesus' power comes from heaven. And the sacrifice he makes, verse 12 is not with with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now here's the difference between the Levitical sacrifices and the blood of Jesus. The Old Testament sacrifices had to be repeated. Jesus offered himself up though once for all. Jesus' sacrifice never had to be duplicated. Under the old covenant, the blood of animals covered man's sin for the moment. That's why they had to be repeated. You know, they they could cover it for a little while, but then it had to be repeated over and over and over again. They earned a temporary probation, you might say. But again, they had to be repeated. But now, the sacrifice of Jesus is a one-size, one-time, fits-all sacrifice. Jesus has provided us now a permanent pardon. Under Judaism, you were on probation. But in Jesus, you've been pardoned once and for all. Notice verse 13. For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. Now here he mentions Numbers chapter 19. For there Moses told Israel to sacrifice a red heifer and to burn its carcass. Then the ashes from the sacrifice were mixed with water and they were sprinkled on anyone who needed to be purified, who had touched a dead body. The ashes of the red heifer were also used to dedicate the tabernacle and the temple. And this is why those in Israel today who want to rebuild the Jewish temple, and there are many. As a matter of fact, it's predicted in the scriptures as a last day's event. 
Those people are trying desperately to breed a red heifer because they know they need one in order to conduct the ritual and dedicate the temple. It's a figurative significance that the ashes of the red heifer were mixed with water and they were applied to the person or the object by sprinkling. In Scripture, water is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And we should know it's the Holy Spirit that takes the merits of Christ, the merits of His sacrifice, and applies them to the cleansing of our lives. How did an event that took place 2,000 years ago affect my life today? Well, here's how it, how it happens. Those ashes were mixed with the, the water. And it's the Holy Spirit that now brings the effects of the cross into my life upon my heart. If you're a former Methodist, you'll love this. But you're cleansed by sprinkling. You really are. It's the blood of Jesus. It's through the sprinkling of the Holy Spirit that the blood of Jesus is applied to our lives. But if the blood of bulls and goats were effective for a time, notice verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, the blood of Jesus is so much more powerful than anything the Old Testament offered. It has a deep and it has a lasting effect upon us. Once Good Morning America interviewed Albert Speer, a former Nazi. Speer was the industrial genius that kept Hitler's factories functioning during the war. He was one of 24 war criminals, the one of the 24 war criminals at Nuremberg to actually admit his guilt. Speer was sentenced and he served 20 years in prison. And he was remorseful to the end, unlike his associates. In fact, he said in the interview that day, I served 20 years, but I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people. And I can't get rid of it. It was Albert Speer's last public appearance, his last public statement. He couldn't get rid of the guilt. You see, only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse a guilty conscience like Albert Speer's. Only the blood of Jesus can get deep down inside of us and wash away that guilt and provide for us the deep feelings of forgiveness that the human soul craves. Notice verse 15. And for this reason... He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Jesus died not just for those alive at the time, not just for those who would come after. He died for those who had lived before him who were under the old covenant, but who were trusting in a coming deliverer. He says, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Now we talk about the old and new testaments. It's another word for covenant. It's the terms of an agreement. And in the case of Jesus, God's covenant acted as a last will and testament. In other words, his death activated God's salvation. Now, 
Say your old Uncle Bob was a rich guy. And he left in his last will and testament for you to receive his boat and his house and his stocks and his bonds and his cars. But you see, until he dies, you don't inherit a dime. And like a will, under the new covenant, the new testament, God promises us provisions. He promises us a salvation. But it doesn't get set into motion until Jesus' death. Think of those Old Testament believers who lived before Jesus. When these folks died in faith, rather than go straight into the presence of God, they went to a holding tank. In Luke 16, Jesus called it Abraham's bosom. There they waited on the Savior's death to receive their salvation. This new covenant isn't activated until the testator dies or until Jesus died. This is why Ephesians 4 tells us that it was after his death that Jesus ascended into heaven and he led those Old Testament believers into the presence of God. Upon the death of the Savior, at that moment they became eligible to possess their inheritance. Today, because Jesus has already died in our place, when we die, we go straight into his presence. Salvation is immediately ours because it was all activated. It all became became uh, liquid, you might say, when Jesus died on the cross for us. Notice verse 15. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all of the vessels of the ministry. Now when Moses dedicated the tabernacle and he launched the old covenant, he took a hyssop branch, a little leafy twig, and he dipped it into the blood of the bulls and the goats that were slaughtered, and then he sprinkled it just about everywhere. I mean, you don't get this when you see Charlton Heston coming down off the mountain, but, but this is really what happened. Moses sprinkled everything with the blood on the tabernacle, on its furniture, on the law, even on the people. He sprinkled them with blood. The old covenant was a bloody affair from its outset. When Moses was done with the dedication of the tabernacle, I imagine it looked like a drive-by shooting. I mean, blood was splattered everywhere. All this blood and gore emphasized to Israel the seriousness of their sin. You see, they, whenever they sinned, they would have to pick out a lamb. They would pick a cute little lamb out of their flock. And then they would bring it before the priest. And they would have its throat slit and the blood drained. I mean, it would be like taking your pet. How many of you got a dog? It'd be like taking your pet little rover on a leash and taking him down to the priest where he was slaughtered because of all the stupid stuff you'd been doing. Hey, if that happened, you'd see your sin in a new light, wouldn't you? The thought of taking your little pet down to the priest with the butcher knife in his hand, it almost brings tears to our eyes. But think now about Jesus being led to the slaughter. See, this is what happened because of our sin. Sin is a serious crime, and it deserves a severe penalty. 
He says, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. In other words, there can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. I mean, this was the law of Moses. This was its primary lesson to you and me. You know, today our places of worship are clean and sanitary. At least if the guys did their job on Saturday. But hey, you walk into the Old Testament tabernacle and it looked and smelled like a beef slaughterhouse. It looked like a meat market, a beef cattle house. The job of the priest was more like a butcher than a preacher. As one author writes, the Old Testament sacrificial system was a gory affair indeed. During the thousand plus years of the Old Covenant, there were more than a million animal sacrifices. So considering that each bull sacrifice spilled a gallon or two of blood and each goat a quart, the Old Covenant truly rested on a sea of blood. During the Passover, a trough was actually dug from the temple down through the Kidron Valley just to channel off the blood. It was a sacrificial drain pipe. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 says it clearly. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. You see, God told Adam and Eve that the wages of sin was death. And since the nutrients of life flow to the rest of the body through our bloodstream, then biblically speaking, the debt of sin requires the spilling of blood. Of course, this is where some liberal theologians, they ridicule Christianity. Did you know that Christianity has been called the slaughterhouse faith? The bloody religion. The necessity of blood offends modern sensibilities. It's all considered barbaric. Well, I have one response to that. So what? Who cares what they think? Who cares what some theologian somewhere thinks? If God is the one doing the forgiveness, then he can set the terms for that forgiveness. Who are we to tell God what to do? And he has told us unequivocally, the terms of our forgiveness. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. People who try to eliminate the cross of Christ and clean up the gore and sanitize Christianity, they strip it of its power. You remember in the future when John, when he visited heaven, he saw a lamb as though it had been slain. Jesus, the Lamb of God, will bear the marks of His crucifixion for all eternity. To negate the blood is to insult the Savior. As the old hymn puts it, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Verse 23 Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. Remember, the earthly tabernacle was dedicated with earthly animals, but the heavenly things, he says, God's throne, themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. 
You see, Moses dedicated the tabernacle with the blood of bulls. That was his domain, the earthly tabernacle. But Christ has entered the heavenly tabernacle, heaven itself, with his own blood. This is his domain, all eternity. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ had to die, but only once. You see, this is why we Protestants reject the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. It's the belief, the communion belief, that the bread, the wafer, and the wine literally turn into the literal body and blood of Christ each time it's offered. Do you understand? This is what the Roman Catholic priest is doing when he serves you communion. He is literally sacrificing the body of Christ all over again. God forbid! Here we're told that Christ doesn't need to be sacrificed again. He has been sacrificed once and for all. On the cross, all that needed to be done was done for our salvation. It was done once and for all. Verse 27, And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. And here I hope you notice the Bible refutes any idea, any notion of reincarnation. You don't get to return in another form. It's appointed for men to die once and then the judgment. There was Rocky, and then Rocky 2, and Rocky 3, and Rocky 4. But there won't be Sandy 2, and Sandy 3, and Sandy 4. When I die, I'm going to meet my maker. And I'm going to give an account of the life that I've lived. And so will you. There'll be no do-overs, no second chances. You die, then there's the judgment. When you die, don't expect any long tunnels and any bright lights. I like how C.S. Lewis described it. He tells us what to expect the very instant we die. He says it this way. There will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it is impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have already chosen, whether we realized it or not. Now today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. Let me say it again. We die, then it's the judgment. Verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. In other words, there's no more dying for Jesus. On the cross, He cried out, It is finished. When he comes a second time, it won't be to add anything to our salvation. It will be to enforce what he has already accomplished. Chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things. Now what if I were to go home tonight and find my wife sitting on the couch 
in a nice negligee. She has it in her mind to spend the night, a romantic evening with her husband. What if that were to happen? But instead of me walking over and sitting down next to her on the couch, what if I walked over to the mantel, pulled down a picture of Kathy, and began embracing the picture? Here I am, kissing the picture frame, talking to the picture, while the real Kathy Adams is over sitting on the couch. If that were to happen, you would classify me as a certifiable nut. Yet this is what these Hebrews were doing. By returning to the sacrifices and to the traditions of Judaism, they were embracing the shadows, what had cast a shadow on something bigger, on the coming of Christ. They were embracing the shadows and the symbols while ignoring the substance, Jesus himself. They were acting like nuts. He continues, all this Old Testament religion can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach them perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have no more consciousness of sin. I mean, if the debt of sin had truly been paid, then why were these sacrifices repeated year after year after year? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. But it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. I like how the poet puts it. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience rest or wash away one stain. The Old Testament sacrifices failed to accomplish a permanent solution for man's sin and rebellion. And yet Jesus paid the price once and for all. And when he breathed his last, he said, It is finished. Usually, when you think of the Christmas story, when you turn in the Christmas story in your Bible, where do you turn? Well, to Matthew or to Luke. You read about Joseph and the wise men, or you go over to Luke where it recalls Mary and her encounter with the shepherds. I'll bet when you read the Christmas story, you don't turn to Hebrews, but you should. For here, in these next few verses, we find one of the most vital yet most overlooked scenes in the Christmas narrative. For here is the parting statement of Jesus to his Father in heaven just before leaving his eternal home for his embryonic home. Verse 5. Therefore, when Jesus came into the world, the very first Christmas, when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. For centuries, Jesus had watched the Father in heaven from his heavenly perch there by his side. He watched the Father receive the sacrifices, but they achieved no satisfaction in the Father's heart. There was a reluctance in his eyes, not an acceptance. His look indicated that things were not quite right. The animals that were being offered were also tainted with sin themselves. All creation had been affected by the fall of mankind. And the Father understood that only a sinless sacrifice Only untainted blood 
could at the same time sanitize a sin-stained world and satisfy a sinless God. But where would the Father go to find such a sinless sacrifice? Well, that's when His only Son stepped up and He said these words, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Understand, God is spirit, but spirit doesn't pierce. Spirit doesn't bruise or bleed. And that's why Jesus, the eternal son, needed a body. Jesus was born to die. And thus, the next thing we see in the Christmas story, Mary had a little lamb and named him Jesus. Understand, God became a man so that he could take a nail for you and me. A body was prepared for him so that he could be sacrificed. Notice verse 7. Then I said, and Jesus is now quoting Psalm 40. Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Notice, in the volume of the book, it's written of Jesus. On every single page of Scripture, buried in every ritual, seen in every sacrifice slaughtered, there was a prophetic portrait of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is in the volume of the book, from cover to cover, from page to page. And when the time came to deliver the goods, to do the dirty work, Jesus was obedient to the will of God. Verse 8. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. The Old Testament, the Jewish sacrifices were replaced by the ultimate sacrifice, God's own Son. He takes away the first, and he replaces it with the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. You see, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the temple in his day. It was standing. It was in operation. It was the hub of the Hebrews. It was the center of Jerusalem. It had been so for thousands of years. This sacrificial system had been in operation. Obviously, Hebrews was written before 70 AD. That was the year that Rome toppled the temple and ended the animal sacrifices. But at the moment, it was still functioning. After the sacrifice of Jesus, though, God ended the temple operation in just a few short decades. Why? Because upon Jesus' sacrifice, it became obsolete and irrelevant. In other words, once the ultimate sacrifice had been made, there was no longer a need for the shadow. He says, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. I mean, the Old Testament priests say they continued to labor over and over and over again. The temple was a hubbub of activity. There was no rest whatsoever. No one ever sat down because the job was never done. But Jesus, after he sacrificed himself on the altar, he sat down because the job was finished. The Old Testament priest ministering in the tabernacle never sat down. Did you know there was furniture in the tabernacle, but there were no chairs? There were no chairs. 
The priest was always on his feet. For under the law, his work was never finished. A full pardon for forgiveness of sin could never be accomplished. And yet when Jesus offered his sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God to await his exaltation. Again, on the cross, he uttered, It is finished. All that needed to be done was accomplished for you and I to be right with God. Verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. What a blessing. In Christ, we have been perfected forever. We're complete in our relationship with God. You don't have to worry and fret about messing up. By faith in Christ, you're as pleasing and satisfying to God as you can get. He says, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. The new covenant was about a new heart. Rather than writing his law on stone tablets, God now writes his law in our hearts. When we come to Jesus, he puts within us a love for God and a love for others. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. The new covenant is about a new heart, but it's also about a new start. Or a clean slate. I will remember your sins no more. Aren't you glad of that? He says, now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. It's no longer needed. Now he's quoted from Jeremiah 31. The sacrifice of Jesus paid for the new covenant, and he continues. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Now, remember the old veil of separation that stood between man and God. It was literally torn in two the moment Jesus died. It was split in half from top to bottom, the scriptures say. Now today, the veil that stands between God and man is actually the torn body of our Lord Jesus. For to enter God's presence today, you don't have to offer sacrifices or live by the law or fast or wash or jump through a bunch of religious hoops. Did you know that all that stands in the way between you and the person and between you and God today is the person of Jesus Christ? He is the veil. And his body has been torn so that you can enter in. Bow to him and you can have access to God. That's all that needs to be done is to embrace to call upon the name of Jesus. And when you embrace Jesus, verse 21 tells us, in having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. We have this incredible access to God. So how should we respond? Well, he gives us three commands. I like to call these responses the salad commands because they all begin, let us, let us, let us. Get it? The salad commands. Notice verse 22. Since we have this access, this high priest who intercedes for us, who's ushered us into God's presence through the torn body, the veil, through his torn body, who's ushered us in, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
If the door is truly open between you and God, and it is, if you have this great access, then what are you doing outside the veil? By all means, you need to enter in. You need to draw near. You need to spend time with God and enjoy His presence and beseech Him in prayer. One of the great catechisms of Christianity states as our duty to know God and enjoy Him forever. What are we waiting on? Let's draw near. And then, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. Again, if you've been given this access to God, then hold on. Have faith. Strengthen your grip on God's grace. Be proud of Jesus. Trust in Him. Don't drift from Him. And then, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. If we have this great access before God, then we should never underestimate the value of an encouraging word or a pat on the back. Let us consider one another and encourage each other, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Again, if we have access to God, then let's hang out together. Let's hold on to our faith. and Let's do it together. You know, it's easier to hold on if we hang out with like-minded people. It is. My faith fuels your faith, and your faith fuels my faith. Hey, if we're to draw near and hold on, then the best way to do it is to hang together and encourage each other. Notice these three salad commands taken together. The first deals with faith. Draw near. The second deals with hope. Hold on. And the third with love. Consider one another. It takes faith to enter in. It takes hope to hold on. And it takes love to consider each other. Let's use all three of these virtues, faith, hope, and love, to take advantage of our blood-bought access to God. Verse 26, For if we sin willfully... After we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Wow. In other words, if we have this access to God, let's not walk away from it. Let's not draw back from it. Let's embrace it and hold on and draw near. And let's encourage each other. Here he says, if we sin willfully. Now understand, the sin in view here isn't some minor slip up. The sin here isn't a foul word in the heat of the battle, or one beer too many, or an outburst of anger. No, this is the same sin that we've been dealing with throughout the book of Hebrews. This is the sin of deliberately and willfully turning your back on Jesus and returning your trust to the institutions of Judaism. This would be the sin of renouncing their faith in Christ and returning to the sacrifices and the priesthood and the temple. And the writer assures us that since salvation comes by faith, if you stop having faith, then it is impossible to be saved. He says, if we sin willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If you turn your back on God's only provision for sin, which is Jesus, 
then how can you be forgiven? Verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's saying that the inferior covenant, the law of Moses, had serious consequences if you rejected its terms. Well, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? In other words, how much worse do you think your fate would be if you reject the superior covenant, the new covenant that was bought for in Christ? If you return to Judaism, you have insulted Christ. If you say you can be right with God by your good deeds or by the sacrifices or by some ritual, then you have deemed the precious blood of Christ to be worthless. You've insulted the spirit of grace. You've made a mockery of all that Jesus did. He's telling these Hebrews, don't go back. Verse 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And here are two quotes from Deuteronomy 32. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then take heed to verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh, God is a God of mercy and grace. We've been reading about it. But reject his only son? Callously trample on the son that he sent to die in your place? And there's not a punishment too harsh for that. Verse 32, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Apparently this current wave of persecution wasn't the, ver- the first to hit these Hebrews. Shortly after they had come to Christ, they were hassled to the point of having their possessions confiscated. You know, they had probably been excommunicated by their Jewish families. And thus they were required to return the family heirlooms. Give us back the keepsakes. And yet they had endured that persecution and they had continued in their faith in Christ. And he's telling them now they need to show the same perseverance. Understand, every Christian experiences times when their faith offers no real worldly advantage. Instead of making you rich, it causes you loss. Instead of popularity, it draws persecution. Instead of promotion, you get put down for your faith. There comes a time in all of our lives when that happens. And in those times, we have to hunker down. We have to buck up and continue trusting in Jesus no matter what. If we do, we will receive a great reward, an eternal reward. If we don't lose heart, if we keep walking in our faith. But if we don't, if we draw back, there are dire consequences. He writes about them. Verse 35, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. 
throwing away their confidence, their sure position in Christ. It wasn't just something hypothetical. It was a possibility. Remember in John chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus made a promise that I think has been misinterpreted. He said, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. That is true. No one can snatch a believer from the hand of Jesus. But that sure doesn't mean that that believer can't get up and walk out. Faith has to persevere. It has to continue. Author G.K. Chesterton used to say, the only way to love anything is to realize it might be lost. And that is especially true of God's blessings and of our salvation. I believe it's naive to teach that just because you made a decision for Jesus somewhere in your past, that there's now nothing you can do to jeopardize your salvation. That there's no possibility of you turning and walking away from Jesus. That's not only wrong, but as I see it, it's doing folks a disservice. You're promoting an apathy and a neglect and a nonchalance. We need to be helped to continue in our faith. Notice verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. You don't reap in the same season that you sow. There's always a lag time between God's promise and its fulfillment. Thus, to receive His blessing, you have to endure. He says, for yet a little while, and He who is coming will come and will not tarry. In other words, Jesus is going to return without notice. He's not going to give you 30 days advance to shape up. We never know when He's coming. That's why we need to keep our faith current. We need to continue and persist. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's pretty tough talk. Draw back from your faith. Retreat back to religion, to the Old Testament sacrifices, to the Old Testament priest. And you're no longer pleasing to God. He finds no pleasure in you. You see, those who are right with God will live by faith. Not just have faith at one time in their past, but they will continue to live by faith. And the tough talk isn't over. He says, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition. You you can draw back to perdition. That's another word for damnation, by the way. Or ruin. We're not of those who draw back to damnation. You can draw back. You can walk away from Christ and lose your salvation. But we are of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Continue to believe. And you'll guarantee your salvation. Cease having faith and it can mean hell. To be saved by faith, you have to continue in that faith. In Christ, we have a better way, a new and living way. So, let's not draw back. Let's continue in our faith. And there we have Hebrews chapters 9 and 10.